and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Donnelly, whose previous books for teens include Revolution and A Northern Light, which won the Carnegie Medal and received a Prince honor. This spring, Donnelly is starting a new series for middle grade readers, The Waterfire Saga, which begins with Deep Blue. The book is being published in May by Disney Hyperion, which is sponsoring this podcast. Deep Blue is the first book in a series set in the oceans, seas, and rivers of planet Earth, where mermaids thrive, hidden from human view. Just as a mermaid named Serafina is about to be declared heiress to the throne of Miromara, a brutal attack on her realm thrusts her into a dangerous quest to uncover her own heritage and abilities, joined by five other young mermaids. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you've written on your website about uh, the somewhat serendipitous start that this uh, book got. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your visit to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and how that got things rolling? Sure. It's an, it's an interesting story. I was um, between projects and sort of casting around for a new idea and coming up dry, which is a, a very uh, scary state of events for a writer. So I went to the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, uh, hoping for some inspiration. And I went to an exhibition called Savage Beauty, which was a retrospective of the work of the designer Alexander McQueen. Um, as, as many people know, he killed himself in 2010. It was a very tragic loss. He was young, only about 40. And uh, I went in not really knowing what to expect, you know, knowing that he did these beautiful dresses and wanting to see them. And I can't even tell you the effect that this 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 exhibition had on me. You, you sort of, I don't know if you've gone to it or if people listening will have seen it, but you went in through a sort of a narrow passageway and it was dark and it was, um, the architecture of the exhibition itself was very evocative. There were all these jewel box rooms that you walk through to view the dresses from his various collections and you would hear sounds like wolves howling or the wind keening and it, it got to me emotionally and I, I walked through room after room of these amazing, beautiful dresses, and these dresses were made of, of crazy things. I mean, embroideries and silk and animal horns and microscope slides, but they were also made of, of intangibles, like emotion longing and regret and sadness and you could feel all these things bound up in sort of every stitch of these dresses so I kept walking feeling very moved and I finally got to the end of the um, exhibition and it featured some collections that he had done based on inspirations that he drew from water and from the sea and overhead in the last room on this giant video screen this very beautiful image of a girl in one of his gowns falling through the water a little bit scary and macabre too because it looked as if she was drowning and I, I watched this transfixed, and I was wondering, you know, who she's supposed to be? Is she Shakespeare's Ophelia? Is she Viola? And I was just moved and kind of gobsmacked by what I'd seen. And I walked out of the museum, and I took a train home. I live about an hour and a half north of the city, and all these images are kind of whirling around in my head. And I don't know what I want to write, but I know that it's going to involve the sea somehow. So then I get to my house, and I, I get home, and it's it's later in the evening, and my husband says, "Call." Steve, it's really important. And I thought, hmm, Steve is Steve Malk, my agent. So I called him, and I swear to you, I'm not making this up. Steve said to me, hey, Jennifer, um, Disney contacted me, and they want to talk to you about this new idea they have involving the sea and mermaids. So I was I was just amazed and blown away by this. To this day, I believe that this was kind of a present sent to me from that great catwalk in the sky. And after that, Disney sent me um, a very detailed Bible featuring a story arc and some of the characters and I was, you know, further enchanted and I knew I wanted to do the story. 
so you mentioned, you know, of course, this this is a project that sort of originated in its concept with Disney, and there were some parameters in a world you were given. What sort of latitude did you have in terms of coming up and developing the characters in the world itself? I had quite a bit of latitude, actually. Disney presented this this story guide. It was it was pretty lengthy. I would say maybe a hundred pages or so, with um, a story arc uh, involving six characters who are fighting this this great evil. It's an unknown evil in the depths of the Southern Ocean, and they had some secondary characters. They had you know sort of the the realms of the Mer Kingdom defined, but that's kind of it. And I I was given a lot of latitude to develop those characters to come up with a mythology. You know how did the folk begin? What sorts of, of worship do they do? What does their environment look like, you know, depending on the region of the world? Who are these people, the characters? What what secrets are the heroines hiding? What struggles do they have? I got to invent the villains. So it wasn't a dictatorial thing at all. It was very much a collaborative give and take and sort of, you know, what I wanted to talk about and what I wanted to stress, they were all ears. And we had a, a very, very open, very nice back and forth. And did you find you were able to then draw in some of that initial inspiration from, let's say, the McQueen exhibit and pull that into the story that was beginning to form and the characters and all of that as it went along? Very much so. That initial inspiration, that sort of... that just this feeling of being haunted that went into the story a lot that's not sort of a you can't draw you know a sort of oh yes I looked at this dress and it it added up to that in the story it was just this emotion that this exhibition kind of stirred up in me that that was the uh, rocket fuel if you will behind the story and that's what took me through the story but looking at his dresses and looking at his sort of artistry is also inspiring in itself in a very practical way you'll see some of the characters in the books wearing some some pretty wild outfits and those um, were definitely inspired by Alexander McQueen. As you mentioned, I think uh, there's also a real sort of global uh, scope to the book with mermaids from just about every part of the world uh, showing up. Um, Was it important to Disney or important to the project to have a real sort of diversity of characters represented? Very much so. That came from Disney. That was part of the original story outline, that they wanted this to be, you know, that they wanted this very much to span the globe and to incorporate many different types of, of mermaids and mermen from all different regions of the world. And that really appealed to me, too. I'm I'm just someone who loves the world and is fascinated by different countries and different cultures. And to be able to incorporate that all into a story was very meaningful for me. Disney also had a big concern, which um, I share with them, about the state of the oceans and and the environmental impact and what sea creatures are going through and that comes out as well whether you're talking about the pacific or the fresh waters or the atlantic um that sort of love for the ocean and its creatures was was present in the the story outline and it resonated with me and that was a very nice aspect of our partnership yeah there's definitely an interesting and very complex relationship i guess between mermaids and humans in the book you know the mermaids are hidden, you know, from most of humanity through a lot of it. But, you know, throughout the book, you see the influence of human language, bits of culture, the sort of physical characteristics, depending on what parts of uh, the world people are from. What sorts of human influences were important to you as you set up to create this mermaid culture with its own magic and its own language and that sort of thing? Humans are a huge influence on mer culture. The the mer actually descended, at least in my telling of the mermaid myth, 
from human inhabitants of the island empire of Atlantis. The island was destroyed, and the way it was destroyed is integral to the story and integral to the evil that's brewing in the Southern Sea. And from the destruction, from the last remaining humans, the Mer were born. I don't want to give too much away and sort of go into how they were born, but uh, humans do play a huge role. The Mer of various ocean realms or, or river realms or lake realms share a lot of characteristics and language and, and cultural differences with their nearby human relatives. But there's a lot of distrust. The Mer are very frightened of humans. That's why they hide. That's why they have spells to protect them from humans. And actually, one of the spells the Mer cast, the Confudo spell, makes us humans sound pretty crazy. If we see a mermaid and start talking to another human, that human we're talking to is going to say, okay, this person's nuts. I don't believe a word she's saying. That's all, that's all done through mer magic. Now, you've written for teens before, of course, as well as for adults, and I believe you even have a picture book, uh, Humble Pie. I do. But I think this is your first time writing for a middle grade audience, and I was curious what, what that was like. It was wonderful. My daughter is now 10 years old. She's only ever been able to read the picture book that I've written. She's still a little bit young for Revolution in the Northern Light, I think. So I finally get to write something for her and her age group, and it's a group that absolutely fascinates me. They seem to be just sort of standing on the border lands of childhood with a suitcase in hand and they're looking to distant shores and they're about to make that journey into into teenagerness and then into adulthood and they really are waving goodbye to childhood to that young child that they used to be and to me as a parent that's very very bittersweet and I'm I'm just so happy to finally have the opportunity to write for this group I find them very intriguing so have you had the, the chance to share it with her yet, or are you going to wait until uh, the book actually comes out? I have. She's my in-house focus group, so she was uh, my first reader, and I don't think I was ever so nervous in my entire life as when I handed her the manuscript, and then I kind of snuck around and watched her, and, you know, does she look bored? Does she look engaged? And I'm happy to say she just turned the pages one after another and kept going, and I was never so relieved in my entire life. <laughs> um, I know it's it's a bit early still, you know, the book isn't out for a little bit yet, but have you been hearing from other readers who have been getting their hands on uh, early copies and that sort of thing? I have, and it's been positive, and it's been very, very heartening, and I'm, I'm just so excited to share it with a larger readership. Will you be um, traveling at all? I will. Spring? I'll be on a tour. I'm not exactly certain of the locations yet, but the book launches on May 6th, and that week I'll be traveling for it. I think you knew from the start that this is going to be a four-book uh, series, or at least that seems to be the original conception. Do you have a pretty good sense in your head of where it's headed? Do you have it all sort of mapped out at this point? I have it largely mapped out, but, you know, that's the thing. You want to impose as an author some order on the chaos of storytelling, and you write these plots, and then the characters sort of kind of shrug and do what they're going to do. And, you know, new things come in and other things get subtracted. So I have a basic flight plan, but I know that there are going to be many, many changes as I go along. Were there any particular surprises in terms of details that developed or the way certain characters unfolded and things like that that uh, surprised you maybe a little bit as the story came together? Yes. The Mirror Lord surprised me. You know, I just... Um I don't know where that came from. He just sort of came into being. I needed a way for mermaids to travel easily from, from one place to another quickly, and this is a very difficult and dangerous way of traveling through a mirror. The mirror is its own realm. What you run into behind the, the mirror glass can be very frightening, and the, the boss of the mirror realm, Roram Drawl, is a very scary creature uh, all on his own. He feeds on, on people's and mermaids' fears. So he was fascinating to me, and getting to know him was very fascinating. And also just getting 
getting to inhabit that ocean realm, you know, putting yourself in the position of someone who lives so far underwater, the darkness that's underwater, uh, the way they live, the way they interact with one another, how they eat, all that was new and mysterious to me. A little bit overwhelming because this is the first time, after all, that I've written a fantasy series or, or even just a fantasy novel. And that was daunting to me. I usually write historical fiction that has its, you know, its rules and its boundaries and its parameters that you don't uh, deviate from too much. And and in fantasy, anything goes. You do have to, uh, you know, impose logic and order too on a fantasy world, but you can do anything. And that that felt like sort of being on a trapeze without a safety net to me. That was very, very daunting um, at first. And then as I got going, it was thrilling. And, you know, there's a lot of really fun details in terms of the architecture and just the sort of the way that the raw materials, I guess, that are under the sea are sort of incorporated into the, the daily lives of these mermaids. And certainly there's their own sort of undersea slang and things like that. Did you sort of dive into existing mermaid lore or did you try to sort of stay away from it and sort of chart your own course? A little bit of both. I wanted to find out what some other cultures' takes on the mermaid myths were and what underwater creatures they had. I found that very, very inspiring and interesting, but I also just kind of wanted to run with it and, and think, you know, what's what's my version? What's my interpretation? I love the Little Mermaid. I love, you know, the Hans Christian Andersen telling and the Disney telling. That's all wonderful. But I wanted to do something my own and a little bit different and hopefully i have now will uh will these books uh, basically sort of take over your writing life for the next couple of years or are yes, you they, <laughs> yes they will these books and these characters and they have you know you just um uh, i don't know you get so it, it becomes your world and they become your friends and you live with them and talk about them as if they were you know real and they talk back to you so i'm i'm deeply immersed and i i'm happily going to be immersed for the next few years as well Very good. Well, uh, congratulations again on this book, and thanks for speaking with me. Thank you so much, John. Once again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Donnelly, author of Deep Blue, published by Disney Hyperion. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. 